As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. everyone. It's Nurse Mo. Welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. I am so excited that you're here with me today for episode 119, you guys. That's amazing. Something also that's amazing is that just this morning, I was getting ready to record this batch of podcasts. I record six at a time and it's, you know, it's a... It's a lot of work, and I really have to pump myself up to sit here for four to six hours recording and talking. And so I was looking at the chart rankings on Apple Podcasts. So in the category of health and fitness, which is a huge category with a lot of big names in it, the Straight A Nursing Podcast is in the top 100. So that's because of you guys being so amazing, subscribing to this podcast, downloading this podcast and rating. So I do want to give a quick listener shout out to one of my podcast listeners, and this is Madison. Madison says, I love Nurse Mo's content. I am learning so much and her episodes help me to feel prepared for nursing school and also helps me to believe in myself. I'm starting my prereqs this year and plan on doing an accelerated nursing program since I already have a bachelor's degree. Nurse Mo, could you do an episode on passing pre-nursing courses like anatomy and physiology, microbiology, and statistics? That would be super helpful. I am so nervous for these classes and I know you'll have awesome advice. Okay, Madison, I will be totally honest with you. I am not going to be able to help you with statistics. I barely got an A in that class. That was the class that made me fear for my GPA. I think I ended up getting like a 91% in that class. Whew, barely got through that one. So as far as anatomy and physiology go, if you go to the straightanursingstudent.com website, there are a ton of my actual notes from anatomy and physiology. They're all typed up. They're super organized. They're absolutely incredible. They're free. They're there. I'm not going to say they're typo-free or 100% perfect because they're seriously just the notes that I made for myself in school, but I saved them and just have them there for you guys to help you get through that class because it is a big class and you, you know, if you have a little bit of an extra help, then there you go. If I can explain a concept in a way in my notes that helps you understand it, then there you go. Unfortunately, I didn't start typing up and saving my notes in that way until after I had gotten through microbiology. For that class, I would say it's really important to pay very close attention in your lab. You are going to be doing all kinds of really cool lab experiments, growing all kinds of things. And if you draw really detailed or snap photos with your iPhone, really detailed images of what you're seeing on your petri dishes that can help you so much when you take your lab exam. So I hope that helps Madison and thank you so so much for reaching out and sharing that review. 
So now let's dive right into our topic for today, which is compartment syndrome. So this is something that is considered an emergent, very serious situation, and it does require immediate treatment. So we're going to be talking about acute compartment syndrome here and not that chronic compartment syndrome, which is often caused by muscular exertion. We're talking more about the acute onset compartment syndrome that is a limb threatening condition. So by limb, I mean, you know, it often happens in the arms and the legs. So it threatens the life of that limb. And if left untreated could result in the loss of that affected body part, it can cause kidney failure, it can even cause a fatality. So what is compartment syndrome? So to understand compartment syndrome, you first have to have a good grasp of what we mean by compartments. So think about your muscles, your blood vessels, all being surrounded by that fascia, that thin, but that really very strong connective tissue layer that helps keep everything in place. If you guys had a wet lab in your anatomy class, then you remember how tough it was to cut through that fascia. So that's what that does. It keeps kind of everything where it needs to be. Think of it as the scaffolding for the inside of your body. So each of these groupings of muscles, of organs, is therefore considered to be inside a compartment that's created by that fascia structure. So when things like bleeding, edema, muscles swelling, you know, maybe the muscles have an injury and they're swelling, all of these things put pressure against that fascia in that compartment. The pressure goes up in that compartment. And when that pressure exceeds that fascia's ability to stretch, and you guys have, if you were in a wet lab, you touched it, you felt it, you know it's not super stretchy. So when the pressure goes beyond the ability of that fascia to stretch, then pressure is going to build up inside that compartment causing something else in that compartment to be compressed. And what we care about the most is that blood vessel getting compressed. As the blood vessels compress, blood flow is restricted, and that leads to a lack of oxygen in the tissues and eventually tissue death. So the most common locations, like I mentioned a moment ago, for compartment syndrome are the arms, the legs, and it can also occur in the abdomen. When it occurs in the abdomen, we call that intra-abdominal hypertension. And that, that is a really scary situation. And that is worth a whole conversation all on its own. For the purposes of today, we're talking about compartment syndrome in the arms and the legs. But if you do want to check out the abdominal hypertension component, then I will link to that in the show notes. So what causes compartment syndrome of the limbs? So let's look at what could be the precipitating factors for this. So one of the most common causes of that compartment syndrome are crush injuries or a limb being compressed for an extended period of time. So think about your trauma patient who was in a car accident, maybe the car rolled over 
they, you know, maybe they were ejected and the car kind of rolled over and landed on their leg. So they have a crush injury now on their leg. They're at high risk for compartment syndrome. Other causes include surgery to the vessel, which leads to bleeding within that compartment. Even overly tight bandages can cause it, blood clots can cause it, or even very, very, very strenuous exercise. I used to do a lot of indoor rock climbing, and every time I would do it and I was really pushing myself, I swore I was going to get compartment syndrome in my forearms because they would just swell up and hurt so, so bad. So let's say you've got a suspicion for compartment syndrome in your patient or you know they have it, how are you going to assess them? Well, because I know you guys are amazing nurses and nursing students, you are going to do a very thorough head-to-toe assessment. And when you're doing that head-to-toe assessment, that's when you would get that first inkling that something's not quite right with your patient. And that would be when you're checking their pulses, especially in those patients who are at risk for compartment syndrome, you're going to check for these pulses very Thoroughly, and, and you would be really surprised at how often this kind of gets not, I'm not going to say overlooked, but not examined super closely. Um, I've seen nurses swear they can feel a weak pulse when really the patient's pulse is only obtainable via Doppler. A lot of times you are feeling your own pulse or you're feeling what you want to feel. So if the patient has weak pulses or you can't find them or you're not sure if you're really feeling them, you can always grab the Doppler to double check. So if those pedal pulses are difficult to palpate, Sometimes it's just because they're difficult to palpate. Sometimes the person's anatomy might make it a little bit difficult. Maybe they just have low blood pressure and they're difficult, but it could mean that there's something going on. So if the foot is still warm, then you're probably not going to panic, right? If the foot is warm, it's getting blood flow. You will want to watch it, especially if it's a change for the patient. So You definitely want to assess further, and we're going to go through a little case study kind of scenario here so you can see how compartment syndrome might play out over the course of a shift, okay? All right, so you are on day shift, and it is 0700, and you're doing that first head-to-toe assessment on your patient, and your patient's complaining that her lower leg hurts. And you you know that this patient had a vascular surgery yesterday. So you're thinking, well, you just had surgery. So yes, it's normal for your leg to hurt, but you're not going to brush off any concerns like this because you have that hyper sense of awareness that the patient could be at risk for compartment syndrome. So you check her pedal pulses and you notice that the pulses distal to that surgical site where the surgeon was working on that vasculature are not palpable. But she also has a fair amount of swelling, and sometimes that edema can make those pulses difficult to obtain via palpation. So you're not fully stressing out just yet. The foot is still warm and pink. She can move her toes. Um, It does make her complain a little bit more about the pain, but she can move her toes. And maybe, maybe she's just, you know, has a low pain tolerance. Maybe she doesn't have good coping mechanisms. You haven't gone into freak out mode yet, but your suspicion is starting to build. You did that full assessment. 
So since those pulses were a little bit weak, it's now 0705, and you're going to do a little bit more work. You're going to dig a little bit deeper because that's what nurses do, right? We see problems and we fix problems and we anticipate the problems that could happen and try to avoid them. And one of the things that we do as part of that is when you're anticipating problems that could happen, you sometimes need to go and do a little bit of detective work. So you dive into her chart. And you look to see what her pulses were after surgery. Was the nurse or the physician able to palpate that pedal pulse after surgery? And you look into the chart and you see that, yes, the pedal pulses were present and palpable after the procedure. So now, hmm, now we're getting a little bit more suspicious. At 0715, we go off and we're going to hunt down that Doppler. So in most units, it's probably locked up somewhere because they tend to grow legs and walk away. So you're going to go find the Doppler. And with that, you guys will have a ultrasound gel um, because the Doppler needs that gel in order to transmit the sound. So you find the Doppler and you get the ultrasound gel. And you go in there to assess her pedal pulse via auscultation. That Doppler is going to give you a sound so that you can hear the pulse. And it sounds, on a normal, healthy patient with good blood flow, it sounds kind of like, kind of like that, okay? And it can be loud and it can be soft. And a lot of times, you guys, when you're using the Doppler to assess There's a skill to it, and you'll get better at it. I would say definitely practice it when you're in clinicals or when you're new on the job, especially if you're working on a vascular surgery floor. You're going to be doing this a lot, and the more you do it, the better you get at it. Just because you've got the Doppler doesn't mean that the pulse is going to be instantly audible. A lot of times it has to do with the angle in which you're holding the little Doppler wand and obviously the location. So once you find that pulse where you can auscultate it, mark that spot so that it'll be a lot easier the next time you go in hunting for it. So you have the Doppler and you go looking for that pulse that you cannot feel. You check both the posterior tibial and the dorsalis pedis and you cannot hear anything. So what are you going to do? What I usually do is I get a friend to come in and say, hey, can you can you find this pulse? Because I'm having a hard time finding it. Again, it's because sometimes they are hard to find. It's angle. It's um, maybe very low pitched. So a lot of times before I call the MD to say pulses are absent, I get a friend to come in and look for it as well. So your friend comes in, they give it a good 5-10 minute effort, and they aren't able to find the pulse either. So now you're thinking, okay, I'm convinced that we have a missing pulse. Something is definitely not right. So at 0720-ish, you see Dr. Bob, and he's going through the rounds uh, in the morning before he heads into surgery for the day. And if you didn't see Dr. Bob, you'd be on the phone calling him. but He's here on the unit, and you're going to let him know about your findings because this is definitely something that you would call the physician for. Absolutely, this is considered an abnormal finding and something that the physician needs to know about right away. So Dr. Bob discusses with you what he found on his assessment. So he goes in, assesses the patient, comes out, is talking with you about it, and basically he 
is also unable to uh, locate that pulse via the Doppler. So he says, please keep a close eye on things. I'm going into surgery. Um, Definitely call me if you start seeing signs of compartment syndrome. So he gives you his pager number and tells you to call that pager and he'll have his circulating nurse call you back if he's in surgery. So you have your marching orders. You know that you're going to be keeping a close eye on this patient. The fact that Dr. Bob didn't freak out immediately makes you feel a little bit better, but you're not going to back off on your hypervigilance. You're not going to back off on your index of suspicion that this could be something that's going seriously very wrong. You're going to be really, really on top of those vascular assessments. So Dr. Bob wrote orders that he wants you to assess that patient's neurovascular status every hour for 24 hours and to call if you notice any of these things. So pallor, which is the uh, extremity, that limb, that body part losing its normal color. So pallor would be that paleness. Increased pain. So she already has some pain. When the limb loses blood flow, the pain increases quite a bit. Poikilothermia which is basically that limb not being able to maintain normal body temperature. When you touch that limb, it's going to be cool or even cold, especially when compared to the unaffected limb. The other ones are paralysis, if she can no longer move her foot, move her toes, and paresthesia, if she can no longer feel you touch. So these are the, let me see, how many was that? Pallor, pain, poikilothermia, paralysis, paresthesia. And the other one is pulselessness. So those are the six P's of compartment syndrome, okay? Pallor, pain, poikilothermia, paralysis, paresthesia, pulselessness. So you guys already have one. You have pulselessness. So we want to be assessing for these things every hour. And, you know, Dr. Bob went in, saw the patient, saw the same things you did, and you really wish you had asked him at the time, why are you not panicking yet? But then one of your more experienced nurse friends lets you in on a little tip. And that's because let's say this patient had chronic vascular problems. So that patient has likely developed something called collateral circulation. So even though you don't feel the distal pulse in the big vessels, perhaps they're still getting some blood flow through those collateral vessels. So the foot is still warm. So that makes me think, okay, maybe collateral blood flow is okay. And she can still feel and she can still move her toe. So maybe she's getting blood flow through those collateral blood flow channels. So you take a deep breath, you relax a little bit, but you're still staying really vigilant and on top of things. So now let's go back and we're going to do our charting and we're going to come back an hour later at 0830 to do our next assessment. So it's 0830. The Doppler still cannot pick up an audible pulse. It's not showing any signs of that turbulence in the vessel, which is what you hear with the Doppler. And you think maybe the foot might be a little bit cooler than it was an hour ago. You compare that foot against the other one. And yes, that right foot is definitely cooler than the left. 
You ask the patient, how are you feeling? How does your foot, how does your leg feel? And she states that the pain has increased. The color also looks a little bit pale. It's not super pale. You're not horrified by it yet, but you're starting to get a little bit more concerned, especially with everything kind of stacking up. She can still move her foot. She can feel when you touch the foot, and now she just wants you to leave her alone so that she can go back to watching TV. <laughs> okay, so at 0835, you finished your assessment and you paged Dr. Bob because the patient does have some of those things that he wanted you to let him know about. So that circulating nurse calls back from the OR, and Dr. Bob is deep into a really complex surgery and can't come see the patient until that case is finished. So he increases the frequency of your monitoring to every 30 minutes for the next two hours and says to call again if things get scary. So at 0900, it's been 30 minutes since your last assessment at 0830, you go back in and you do another assessment. And luckily and happily for you and the patient, there's been no change. So whew, you're feeling a little bit better, but you're still, again, remaining super vigilant. At 0930, the patient in bed B, so you're in a shared room, the patient in bed B goes into acute respiratory distress right as you are about to start your assessment on this patient. So you end up helping with an emergent intubation that takes about 15 minutes, so you're a little bit late getting to your assessment on your patient. So this sometimes happens where emergencies will have to come to the top of the priority list, but the very first moment that you get to go back and do that assessment, you're going to do that. So now it's 0945 and the patient is moaning and complaining of increased pain. You do that assessment, still no pulse available via Doppler. The foot is now obviously cool to the touch. So before you were a little bit unsure about it, now it's absolutely clear. The patient can barely wiggle her toes and she has difficulty discerning touch. So you get on the phone and you page Dr. Bob again. You ask your charge nurse to get the patient some pain medication as you speak with Dr. Bob's circulating nurse again. You tell her of the findings on your most recent assessment and she puts you on speakerphone so you can talk to Dr. Bob as he finishes up his vascular case. He's almost done, so he leaves it to his assistant to close up after he hears what you've had to say, and he says he'll be right up to see your patient. So it's 10.15, Dr. Bob arrives on the scene. He gets a quick update from you. Nothing has changed since your last assessment, and he goes in to see the patient who is now in unbearable pain. So being the smart nurse that you are, you've already prepped the patient for emergency surgery just in case. But Dr. Bob can't wait for an OR to become available. He asks for a sterile drape, a scalpel, and a few other things to do a bedside procedure. And then it hits you. He's thinking about doing an emergency fasciotomy. He orders 2 milligrams Versed, 200 micrograms of fentanyl, and now you are convinced he's going to do a surgical procedure right here at the bedside. So you get everything together. It's 1020. You get the supplies, and you're at the bedside with Dr. Bob. And you think through the things that you do know about an emergency fasciotomy. And basically, you know that it's an emergent procedure that will relieve pressure 
in that compartment. It is considered a limb-saving therapy. So Dr. Bob is going to be doing that now. You give the patient their fentanyl, their Versed. She's feeling a whole lot better. You're definitely watching her respiratory um, status because fentanyl and Versed, especially together, can cause a respiratory depression. So you're going to be monitoring very closely for that. You would have your BVM, your bag valve mask, ready just in case her respiratory drive diminishes to the point where she needs assisted ventilation. You probably have a friend in there helping you as well. And Dr. Bob cuts into the patient's leg, cuts through that fascia in one long strip. And that skin splits apart, immediately releasing that pressure on the compartment. And with that, what's anticipated is that the blood flow will improve to the limb as well. This is a very painful procedure. Hopefully that 200 micrograms of fentanyl and that Versed has helped. Your patient seems to be somewhat comfortable now. In the long run, though, her pain is going to be improved because that pressure in that compartment was causing her just excruciating pain as that limb was basically dying from lack of oxygen. So once your patient has their emergency fasciotomy, ideally blood flow improves, but it can still have compartment syndrome if that release, if that fasciotomy wasn't quite enough to fully get that blood flow going to fully release all of that pressure. So you'll continue to watch for signs of compartment syndrome and the patient will probably get some kind of a dressing perhaps a wound vac dressing, maybe a skin graft. It just depends on the extent of the fasciotomy and the patient. So let's talk a little bit about some of the complications of compartment syndrome. So that obvious complication is tissue death. Necrosis can occur, I believe, in six hours. So you have to absolutely be on top of these things, and then that would lead to an amputation. So those dying tissues also will release toxins into the bloodstream, and that can lead to sepsis, which is definitely not good for your patient. It can lead to hyperkalemia. Anytime cells die and break open, they're going to release their intracellular contents. And since potassium is so abundant inside the cell, we worry a lot about hyperkalemia when there's a lot of cell death or cell lysis. Other things that can happen include permanent nerve damage due to this that severe compression on the nerves. There can be severe scarring of the muscle. There can be contractures. Scarring causes that contracture that can lead to a significant loss of mobility for your patient. And the patient can even have acute kidney failure due to muscle breakdown, which is called rhabdomyolysis. So as you can see, compartment syndrome is definitely not something to be taken lightly, but your awesome nursing and assessment skills not only saved this patient's limb, but also possibly her life. So hopefully that gives you guys a little peek inside compartment syndrome, how a condition can change over time and how you, the nurse, would respond. So let's do a little bit of pod quiz because I know you guys love this. And this will help you assess your understanding of compartment syndrome and get you ready for those exams or to work with confidence in the clinical setting. So your patient has poikilothermia. What is that? 
That is awesome. You guys are so smart. So poikilothermia, again, is that inability of the limb to maintain its body temperature. So it's going to be cooler than when you compare it to the opposite limb. Very good. And then what does pallor refer to? Pallor is that paleness, that loss of the normal color for that person. As the blood flow decreases, there will be pallor or paleness. Very, very good. How about paresthesia? What does that refer to? Yes, paresthesia is an ability to feel. So you touch her foot and she cannot feel you touching. So do you think you could tell me the six P's of compartment syndrome? Okay, you guys are so, so smart. So let's go through what those are. Let's see how many that you were able to get. So it's pulselessness, which was the first thing we saw with this patient, pallor, pain, poikilothermia, paralysis, and paresthesia. And just a quick word about pain. The pain will be beyond what you would expect for the patient's injury or the surgery that they had. Of course, after vascular surgery, there's going to be some pain, there's going to be some tenderness. But for the patient to be writhing in pain, that's beyond what you expect to see with that procedure. What is the name of the procedure that releases the pressure on that compartment? Very good. That is an emergency fasciotomy. Excellent. You grab the Doppler because you want to listen for your patient's pulse. What other item do you need to bring into the room? Yes, you need that gel. The Doppler will not work without that ultrasound gel. Why might a patient have no discernible dorsalis pedis pulse, but still have good blood flow? because of collateral circulation. And that's going to happen in patients who have chronic vascular insufficiency because their bodies had time to build up that collateral circulation. Excellent. Very good. Okay, so before we close out today, I want to talk a little bit about two special populations that will make your assessment for compartment syndrome more challenging because as you think about those six P's, a lot of that requires some patient participation, right? You need the patient to be able to rate their pain. You need to assess if the patient can feel you touching their foot. You need to assess if they can move the foot, which requires them to follow your instructions. So the patient that this might be really difficult on is maybe a patient with severe dementia, a patient who is unresponsive for any reason. So that can make it really challenging to get a proper assessment. So you would have to rely more heavily on the other things like the poikilothermia, the pulselessness, and the pallor. There's also devices that can actually measure the amount of pressure in that compartment. And a normal pressure within the compartment is considered to be 0 to 15 millimeters of mercury. So there's some disagreement about what is considered compartment syndrome. The Trauma Nurses uh, Society says that it's anything above 30 millimeters of mercury. Some other sources say 40 to 45. So it will be whatever your team, your vascular surgeon, your trauma surgeons deem is an appropriate level for intervention based on their own protocol. So always double check with that.
There's also one more P that you could use in your assessment, and that is a palpable tenseness to the extremity. So that would come in really handy, especially if you are assessing a patient, like we just mentioned, who isn't participating in your neurovascular checks, not following commands, not rating their pain, or telling you that they can feel or not feel you touching their foot. And then there's the pediatric population, which is always different and always comes with its own set of rules. So in kids, we look at the three A's, and those are agitation, anxiety, and increased analgesic needs. So if you suspect the child is at risk for compartment syndrome because of a trauma, because of, you know, down for an extended period of time, what have you, if they have increased anxiety, increased agitation, and increased need for pain medication, there's a really good chance that there's something going on in that limb, in that uh, compartment. So I hope that gives you a quick overview of compartment syndrome, helps you understand how you're going to assess for this emergent condition so that you can feel really confident and clinical when you're taking care of vascular patients or trauma patients. And of course, if you're in school, when you're taking your exams. So if you guys are looking for extra support, peer support, then I invite you to come check out the Thriving Nursing Students Facebook group. It's a free group to join. Just head on over to Facebook, search for Thriving Nursing Nursing students, it'll come up. There's a few um, introductory questions just to make sure you're not a weirdo scammer, and then we'll let you into the group. And there's currently, you know, almost 13,000 people in that group. So it's really active, great place to go and ask questions, seek support, share support, share stories, and just be around other people who are going through the same thing you are. So I hope to see you there. Have a great week, everyone. And then I will see you back here next week when we talk about all the elements of proper delegation. This is something that you will be hit with really hard in first semester and it's going to be on your exams throughout nursing school. Not only is it considered just a basic fundamental skill, it's also considered a leadership skill. So you'll be talking about it in first semester and fundamentals. And if you have a leadership class, you'll be talking about it there. And it is definitely going to be on exams and it's definitely going to be on your NCLEX. So I'll see you back here next week for that. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation, and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night.